0: Hello, this is Doug Hathaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Dan Pink is a best selling author who has opened millions of minds to insights from science that can help us be better leaders, managers, and marketers, and also healthier, happier people. His most recent book is called The Power of Regret. We all have regrets, though we often think it's best not to. Dan has studied the science and conducted original research collecting regrets for more than 24,000 people in 110 countries. Like his other books, The Power of Regret challenges conventional thinking. It offers science-based insights and ideas you can put to use right away. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we talk with Dan Pink about the power of regret and how to transform our regrets into a force for good in our lives and the world. Dan Pink, I know you are a man in demand, so thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> a pleasure, for anything for you, Doug. I'm sure many of our listeners have read a number of your books, and today we're gonna dive into the, most, the latest one, but first let's start with your story. You're a writer, editor, public speaker, you've got a great masterclass on sales and persuasion, but you started out in politics and government. How did you go from there to where you are now? How did you make this your mission to share these kinds of scientific insights with people like
1: us. Well, I mean, I think like all stories, like like of how we get to where we are, it is non linear, a little bit half assed, and uh, barely <laughs> yeah. barely makes sense in retrospect, let alone prospectively. But to make a very long story short, and you know, you'll and obviously there's some overlaps with with your story too, Doug. Um, I, um, I I graduated from college, Northwestern University. Uh, I worked briefly in Washington and then I decided to go to law school because that's what you do. Um, I was kind of, I was interested in politics and government at the time It seemed like a sensible thing to do. Didn't really like it. Didn't really re- realize that I didn't want to be a lawyer, didn't want to do anything like that. But I slogged my way through, Um, you know, I left once and then I came back and I slogged my way through. Uh, I I didn't want to become a lawyer. So I decided to work in politics, Uh, uh, started working on campaigns. And then at some point, and I don't even know exactly when somebody asked me to write a speech. And I did. And (laughs) it was okay. Then they asked me to write another one. And then they asked me to write another one. You know how it works in campaigns better than I do. How it works in campaigns, it's just like if you can do something, that's your job. All of a sudden, and that right. became my job. So I became a speechwriter, uh, right, uh, working for uh, in the Clinton admin- Clinton Gore administration, working for the Secretary of Labor for a while, then working for the Vice President Al Gore for a while, and then. To make this very long story even longer, um, I discovered that when I was in the belly of the beast, and I don't know whether you had this kind of reaction too, sort of in the belly of the beast, I realized that I didn't really like it as much as I thought I was gonna like it. Like this wasn't for me, and I didn't wanna do this the rest of my (laughs) life. What I I realized that I wanted to do was that um, I was always on the side writing. I I did it as a hobby, like some people play golf or Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, this is what I did. And so even when I was working at these jobs, I was writing magazine columns and newspaper op-eds and things like that, even to the point where I wasn't, I mean, in many cases, I wasn't even getting paid. And I was you know, doing it at like midnight. And so finally, again, I'm now in my early 30s. It occurred to me that what I was doing on the side might be what I should be doing kind of in the center. And so... Uh, I decided to take a flyer and write my own stuff because it seems like that's what I was doing anyway, and that's who I was. And so I left that job. My wife did not leave her job. She did not give up her health insurance. Uh, I went up to the third floor of our house in uh, Northwest D.C., uh, right near American University, and uh, said, you know, we'll give it a couple of years. uh, See if we can see if we can see if we can eke it out. And um, that was 20 plus years ago. And so. Um, that's it. So again, if you, if you and I had, if you and I, when we graduated from college together, if you had told me I would be working from a garage, unshaven (laughs) writing books, I think
0: I would have been surprised. Well, we're glad you made the switch because your books really are insightful and fun to read. Super useful. And that's what that's what we're about on this little podcast is exactly that. Tell us the story behind the book, The Power of Regret. Where did the idea come come about? And how did you go about making this book?
1: Well, it's not it's not a it's it isn't a business book. And it it came uh, out of my own kind of experience where I was at a point in my life where, you know, to my surprise, you know, I realized I had mileage on me. I mean, it happens to all of us where you suddenly realize, like, oh my God, like, there's, I'm, I'm looking backward and there's, there's, there's distance there, which is kind of shocking. And, and I, like anybody else, when I thought back, there were things I wish I had done. There were things I wish I hadn't done. There were things I wish I had done differently. Uh, it's kind of an unpleasant feeling, um, and I knew that nobody wanted to talk about it. But when I began talking about it with other people, very sheepishly, I discovered that a lot of people wanted to talk about it. That when my bringing up this subject unleashed this this wave of pe- of of emotion of people wanting to talk about this 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 topic, and so. Um, and then I started looking at some of the research on it and realized that we had gotten this emotion profoundly wrong. And so, uh, so I decided to, I was actually working on an entirely different book at the time. Um, and I put that aside and re- spent two months researching and writing an entirely new book proposal uh, that I sent up to my editor who thought I was working on book A and um, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, and, and then said, Hey, I think I might want to do this instead. And. Against this better judgment, he agreed with me. And you conducted your own research. Oh yeah, so, so to get it, so so to do the research. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I appreciate that question because, you know, I do think that in 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 nonfiction books, particularly nonfiction books that are about ideas, I think it's really important for readers to scrutinize how does the person making these claims know what they're talking about. Um, and so, I like to show my work. So, I did three pieces of sort of three the, – the, the research in this book on regret stands on three different legs. One is uh, existing science in, on this emotion, science from um, uh, cognitive science, uh, some neuroscience, a lot of social psychology, some developmental psychology. I also did – and this is actually – I didn't ever thought about this until just now. My, our political background might have helped me out on this is that I did a, my own a pu- very large public opinion survey. Uh, the largest American, mm. the largest uh, uh, survey of American attitudes on regret ever conducted. And it was a very good survey. We spent, you know, decent amount of time configuring it, decent amount of money, making sure we had the right panels. Very large survey to get, mm. uh, very good survey I thought to get um, American attitudes on regret. And then I also did something called the World Regret Survey, where I can where I collected. Um, at this point, we now we have. I just looked at the database this morning. We have well over twenty four thousand regrets from people in, um, I think it's now 110 countries. That's amazing. Well, let's
0: see what you learned. What's, let's start with a story. What's a story from the book that exemplifies what you mean by the power of regret?
1: Okay. So, so here's a, so here's one. So here's, so there's a, a woman who I write about. Her name is Abby. She lives in, she's about 29. She, she, when I wrote about her, she was 29. She's she lives in, in Phoenix, Arizona, and when she was growing up, um, her parents, her grandparents who lived in Indiana would come to visit her uh, for part of the uh, part of the winter, and she hated it as a kid. She hated having her grandparents around. She thought that they were annoying. She thought they were pestering her, uh, asking her questions, and she really didn't. She, I mean, she really resented it. Then her grandparents passed away. And she realized as she got basically in her late teens like, oh, my God, I blew it. I didn't hear anything about their lives. I didn't hear anything about their stories. Um, I didn't get to know them. I didn't know what they were about. And she felt really bad. And that's the thing about regret is that here's the thing. Regret makes us feel bad. Regret makes us feel bad. That's essential to understand. But by making us feel bad, it can, if we treat it right, it can clarify what we value and instruct us on how to do better and so what we, what she was saying with that so what she could have done what abby could have done is said no regrets it doesn't matter it's in the past i can't do anything about it bad idea she also could have said oh my god i am the worst person in the world i'm a horrible human being i'm a terrible granddaughter That's a bad idea, too. What she said is like, this feeling stinks, but it's telling me something. And what it's telling her is that she doesn't, she didn't want to blow it again with her parents. And so what she did is that she systematically began collecting the stories of her parents so she would know those stories. And so she wouldn't have this bad sinking feeling later on. And so here's somebody who takes this emotion. And again, instead of ignoring it or wallowing in it, she uses it as a catalyst for deepening her values. The value of love and connection and for doing things better so she now has these 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 stories from her parents that she will have and maybe if she has kids that that her kids will have too forever so you'd said we'd been getting the emotional
0: wrong is that sort of in the i want to live life with no regrets kind of idea Yeah, well,
1: it's. I mean, I think the aspiration of living life with no regrets is 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 okay. Um, What bothers what bothers me is 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 the retrospective look at it. About when you say to people, "Do you have any regrets?" and they say, "No, I have no regrets. I have no regrets." Uh, And and the reason they say that, it's very it's it's quite performative in my view. The reason they say that is because they've I think they've been sold a bill of goods. You know, especially here in America, we've been told that we should be positive all the time and never be negative. We should look forward all the time and never look back. And that's a bad idea. That's unscientific. Um, You know, uh, we should be, we should have a lot of positive emotions. We should have many more positive emotions and negative emotions, but negative emotions are functional. Negative emotions help us. And, and, and when we, when scientists have looked at our negative emotions, whether it's fear or guilt or anger or or regret, the most powerful and potent one seems to be regret. There's evidence that it's the most common negative emotion that people experience. And we also have piles of evidence, particularly in social psychology, that if you deal with your regret properly, it helps you a lot because it's there for a reason. Regret is part of our cognitive machinery. It's just a matter of like, what do we do with it? And so if you process your regret in a healthy way, again. Not stewing on it and wallowing in it, but also not saying, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's in the past. Um, It can help us become better negotiators. It can help us uh, become clearer thinkers and avoid cognitive biases. Uh, It can help us become better problem solvers. It can help us become better strategists. Um, And so what you have here is this. um, So it's misunderstood in in two regards. Number one, it's a it's a very strong signal that we need to listen to. And if we listen to the signal and act on it, it can help us become better. And you mentioned guilt. It sounds like related to guilt, like retrospective
0: guilt, maybe, which I've read about in studies of persuade or uh, motivational psychology that guilt can be a motivational emotion called a self accountability emotion. It helps us hold ourselves accountable to our values and the kind of people we want to be. Is it like
1: that? It's a great point, Doug. I mean, it's similar. Like I would say, so so guilt, I would say is to me is a subset of regret. Guilt is, guilt is a bad feeling we get from a moral regret, a moral inaction or action. So I have in my database, you know, huge numbers of people who Um, I mean, it's amazing. Like there was somebody they liked X years ago. They wanted to ask that person out on a date. They didn't. And they regret it 10 years, 20 years later. That's not guilt. That's Uh, just that's a regret about lack of boldness. But um, I, I think that's one of the interesting things is that, you know, one of the one of the. I have four big categories of regret that people around the world seem to express, and one of them are these moral regrets. And I think that that tells Mm. us something really important that you're getting at, which is that we're often at a juncture in our lives where we can do the right thing or do the wrong thing, where we can take the low road or take the high road. And most of us, most of the time, regret taking the low road or doing the wrong thing. We might still do it, but afterwards, Mm -hmm. it sticks with us. Um, so I got people again in these twenty four thousand who regret, like, just really bothered by bullying people thirty five years ago, forty years ago, um, stealing from a store. This one woman stealing from a store something like sixty years ago, uh, cheating on your spouse. Um, you know, and and so I what it's I think what it suggests is that most of us actually are good and want to be good. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and that when we're not that way, we regret it. And when we feel that, that guilt, um, it's telling us something. It's saying, Hey, I actually value honesty. I value kindness. It's clarifying what we value and it's instructing us what to do in the future because it's saying, I don't want to feel this way again. So I better do the right thing next time. Let's hear about the other three. So there's the moral
0: regrets you just
1: gave examples of. What are the other three categories? So one is one is what I was what I call foundation regrets these are these are small decisions that people make early in life that accumulate to negative consequences later in life. so the quintessential one not quintessential but one of the most common is um I spent too much and saved too little, and now I'm broke. so again, no single action <laughs> going out to dinner once is not going to destroy your life Sp- you know going out to dinner instead of saving money over ten years it could be pretty bad, so spend too much and save too little. Uh, a lot about health. Uh, I didn't eat well. I didn't exercise. Again, skipping a day of exercise or eating some junk food today isn't cataclysmic, but you do that cumulatively and it adds up. So um, we have a lot – more than I expected about education, people who kind of blew off their education and and now said, whoa, wait a second. I – I don't have the skills, um, and this is a hard problem for me to, to to address. So foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. Boldness regrets, big category. Again, you're at a juncture. You can play it safer. You can take the chance, and people who don't take the chance, not all the time, but most of the time, more than I expected, regret it. There There's some people who take the chance and regret it, but for every one of those, I mean, it's... 30 40x people who didn't take the chance and it doesn't matter the domain of life. I mentioned like like romance, just asking somebody out on a date. I was shocked by how many of those that I have. And these are things like 30 years ago. You also have um, people had a chance to travel or go on an adventure and then kind of chickened out and now they regret it. I, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, you you started a business. There are all these people out there who regret not starting a business. Um, And so boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. And finally, connection regrets, which are about relationships um, that were intact or should have been intact. These relationships come apart, usually in kind of undramatic ways. Somebody wants to reach out. They feel awkward about doing that. They think the other side is not going to care. So they don't reach out and the drift goes even further. And so foundation uh, connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And what's pretty amazing about this at least to me, is how similar these regrets are all over the world. If I were just to randomly pick like 10 regrets from this database, I don't think you'd be able to tell me where they're from. I don't think you'd be able to tell me, is this from Wisconsin or is this from Portugal or is this from Malaysia? I mean, it's that degree of kind of commonality. It's it's really surprised me. Yeah, they do all sound like the
0: human condition. <laughs> I'm like, oh wait, I've checked all those boxes, and amazing to hear you say, like, oh, it's not just me who regrets something I a said that I shouldn't have said, or not saying something I should have said thirty years ago. Will just pop into my head.
1: Amen. I mean, it is. <laughs> I mean, I think that one of the takeaways here is, I mean, again, I don't want to sound like a that old ride at Disneyland where it's like, it's a small world after all, where you're going down a boat and they're singing that horrible song. Uh, but yep, there is a lot. It's, it's incredible. I mean, there's, you know, for me, I mean, again, as someone who read, I read through the first 15,000 of these regrets and I saw myself in many, many, many of them. I mean, you know, um, we we do have this common set of experiences and this common set of experiences, I think re- you had the right right phrase, I think this regret teaches us about the human condition. I think that's what it is. And, and it's surprising, too, because we say, oh, I don't want to talk about regret. I don't have any regrets. And yet, if we take this emotion and just not get wigged out by it, but just examine it, it's telling us about the human condition. It's telling us What constitutes a good life? Because when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. You know, if you don't Mm -hmm. have a regret from something you did or didn't do 30 years ago, that's a very strong signal. Like if I were to ask you, what did you have for lunch last Tuesday? You probably have no idea, right? You, You like even, you know, last week, you probably made 200 decisions and 199 of them, you don't even remember this week. And yet there's certain decisions, actions, inactions from 10 years ago, 20 years. Not only do you remember it, but it makes you feel bad. That's telling you something. Like you got to listen to that. And and I think that that's why, again, what I'm trying to do in this this work is kind of reclaim regret and say, let's not get wigged out. Let's not ignore it. Let's not let us bring it down. This is like a very, very regret is a very, very strong knock at the door. So answer the door and see what it's telling you. Well, let's
0: let's take it from there. You, in the book, there's a science based three step process to transform regret into a force for good. Tell Indeed. us about that.
1: OK, so the first step is, is is so you can think of it as kind of inward, outward, forward. So inward is, you know, you have a regret. The first step is how do you think about the regret in yourself? And a lot of us, when we make mistakes, screw up, we are we self-talk. The way we talk to ourselves is brutal. Like I mean, I, I'm a victim. Of, I, I'm a I'm a sinner. Also, I mean, if you were to hear my talk to myself, you would think I was a lunatic. Um, if I were to use my honestly, if I were to use my self talk oh, yeah. in the workplace, human condition right there. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. If I were to use my, but if I, but right. I would never talk to other people the way I talk to myself. And we have research in a field, very fast, a fascinating field called self compassion, that says. That's a bad idea. That lacerating self-criticism is not a performance enhancer. It, it doesn't it, it, it doesn't work very well. What works better is treating yourself with kindness rather than contempt, recognizing, as you've already said, that our mistakes are part of the human condition, and also recognizing we we tend to catastrophize some of these things. We take a moment in our lives that is is negative and say that represents the entirety of my life when in fact it represents a moment in your life. So that's one step. Outward, there's a strong case to be made for disclosure. It's a form of unburdening. It can actually enhance your reputation sometimes. That is, we feel like if we disclose our mistakes or our screw-ups or our vulnerabilities, people will think less of us, but in many cases, they think more of us. Uh, And it also, it it has this kind of... um, it, it, language, conver- emotions are, vi- are nonverbal. They're, they're, they're non-linguistic. They're, they're vaporous. They're gooey. And if you, and they're abstract. And if, you, so if you take an emotion and write about it or talk about it, you're converting it to something abstract, to concrete, and that makes it less fearsome. So, and then the final thing is you got to take a step back and draw a lesson from it. You can't just stop there. You have to say, you know, what did I learn from this and what am I going to do next about it? And when we do that in a kind of very simple but methodical way, it helps us a lot. I mean, it really does. It helps us live better. It helps us perform better at work. So starting with that, this feeling is a signal.
0: Let's step back, go inward. What is this signal telling me? Why do I, why do yeah. I care about this? To your point, if it's coming from thirty years ago, you must really care about it,
1: right? Because because it, because and here's here's a way to think about your regret. If you have a regret, it's clarifying what you value, and it's instructing you on how to do better. I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll get, let's let's go, let, let's let's I'll give you one of mine from literally from thirty over thirty years ago. So so I have some regrets about kindness, and and my regrets about kindness are not about bullying. They're regrets about being in situations where when I, was young, when, you know, when I was much younger, where people were not being treated well, where they were being excluded. They, they just were not being treated right, and off, often a kind of exclusion. And I saw it happen and I knew it was wrong. And I didn't say anything or do anything. Okay. So it's sort of a moral regret for, for inaction. That has bugged me for decades. Okay. So- <laughs> I can either say, ah, no regrets in the past. I can say, oh my God, I'm the worst person on the planet. I'm just a horrible human being. I know I'm not because I know that I got 24,000 people with regrets. I, what I can say is like, wait a second, 30 plus years ago, this is, this is making me, this, is, this bugs me? What's it telling me? What it's telling me in a way that I might not have realized through other means is I value kindness more than I might realize. Like if you were to say to me in a sort of directly, do you value kindness? I'd say, yeah, 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 yeah. But it turns out that I actually value it more than I might consciously realize because this act of unkind, these acts of unkindness stick with me 30 years later. So it's saying, hey, you value kindness more than, I, than you think. And then it's instructing me about how to do better. And so now I try. I mean, I'm imperfect, obviously. But if I'm in a situation where... Um, I feel like someone I'm at a meeting and I feel like someone's voice isn't being heard. I'll do everything I can to kind of bring that person in, even since it's mundane, but like in a social setting, sometimes you have clumps of people who are talking and you often see somebody marooned by him or herself. I'll try to bring that person in and. That's good. So it, it's improved mm. me. It's made me. It's made me a better person in a way that ignoring it would not have, and wallowing in it would not have. Um, and so you know, this this is this is the thing. And so if we can kind of normalize this emotion, all of us can learn from it. Yeah, you said this isn't a business title per se, but I can see
0: how this can lead to uh, kind of new ways of showing up <laughs> at work and at home and elsewhere that can make a difference. In fact, the book's promises. What does it we'll promise? Make Let's see. Decisions, says we'll make smarter decisions, perform better at work and school, deepen our sense of meaning and purpose. Okay. What are I'm some? With you. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> what are some examples? Some other examples from the from the book of showing how people, you know, took this. Uh, awareness of a regret and transformed
1: it into a force for good. Okay. So, 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 so many of these. Um, so I, I, I'll give you, I'll give you a business one. And, and I think one of the interesting things is, I think it's an interesting phenomenon of media today. So it's obviously something that you're interested in and something that you work on is um, in the old days, there was this kind of, if you wrote a book, it was this almost Olympian thing where you made a sort of pronouncement and gave it to the great unwashed masses <laughs> right. down below, right? But now yep. readers can talk back, and I invite readers to talk back. Um, they can find me until very like – my first few books, I even put my email address on the book jacket and invited people to to do that. I make it – I put a few uh, speed bumps now in front of people, but, there, but I get a lot of email from readers. And what's interesting about that, and here's the point, is that – I think in the second week, I started hearing from people in companies saying, okay, I was skeptical of this, but I read it, and so I decided to do something. I, I, I got my team together, and I discussed a regret that I had, told them about a regret that I had, told them what I learned from it. And told them what I'm going to do about it. And we just had the best conversation we've ever had in the workplace. And I kept getting emails <clears> like that. So people are doing those kinds of things. And what that does, especially when bosses do it, is it creates psychological safety and it creates a learning environment um, where someone can say, oh, I regret that I um, uh, I didn't, I regret, I mean, something, you know, I regret that I, you know, I, I regret that I didn't proofread that, that publication carefully enough. And it went out with like a couple of typos and that's horrible. I, you know, so what, okay. So it, what do you do about that? You, you say, okay, what do you, you know, you were, it's a, it's a regret about conscientiousness. And so just talk about it, disclose it, tell the lesson you learned from it and then come up with a mechanism to do better next time. And so I think that's one of the, um, I think that's one of the exciting things about it. The other thing is that I have people who, uh, it's horrible stories where where people have a friend, they want to reach out to the friend, the friend gets sick. Mm -hmm. They say, oh God, it's going to be even more awkward now because she's going to think I'm only reaching out to her because she's sick. I'm going to wait make it, and she waits and waits and waits, and then the friend dies. And so the door closes, the door closes entirely. There's so many stories about that. And that can be, it can be friends, it can be parents, it can be kids, it can be siblings. There are, there are a lot of, um, a lot of us get to a juncture in our lives where we think, should I reach out or should I not reach out? And we we fear reaching out because we think it's going to be awkward and we think the other side's not going to care when in fact it's it's way less awkward than we think and the other side always cares, almost always, like 99 times out of 100 cares. And so, you know, I think there's a lesson uh, if you're at that juncture wondering should I reach out or should I not reach out, being at that juncture has answered that question. I can give you a couple more business-related b- business, business related things for your, your, your listeners if you're interested. Well, let's... Um
0: Yes, and because a lot of our listeners work (laughs) in business, but also government and nonprofits and foundations and all kinds of organizations. Organizational. Yeah. Right. That are, for the most part, looking to create some kind of positive change in the world. That's how I describe our audience. So, yeah, examples down those lines.
1: So, so, I mean, I think that they're all, I think there are all kinds of things that that you can do. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you a few, I want to be, you know, give you some tactical examples here. So one thing that you can do, um, you know, whatever sector you're in is, uh, it's an idea from Tina Seelig at Stanford University called a failure resume. Now, everybody <laughs> listening to your podcast has a resume, you know, and a LinkedIn profile and those things sparkle. Right. And a failure resume is the exact opposite of that, where you list your failures, your screw ups, your mistakes, your setbacks. Um, but again, you don't stop there. It's not an exercise in self-flagellation. It's an exercise in analysis. And so one thing that, I've done this myself, but the, the, the modest, the more modest way to do this is this, um, uh, get a, uh, a, 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 a table uh, on a word processing program or a, a spreadsheet and make um, um, you know five boxes and, and, and figure out five things that you regret, five big mistakes, professional regrets, mistakes, screw ups or blunders, okay? Then in the next column for each one of those, put what lesson did you, you learn from it? And then in the third column, put what you're gonna do about it. And this is a very, very good technique. Mm. Um, You don't need to show it to anybody necessarily, but it forces you, again, out of this kind of blithe denial, but also this debilitating self-criticism and says – I'm just going to analyze that. There's another great decision-making tool. It's one of my favorite decision-making tools is from Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel. Mm-hmm. He said when he was faced with a business decision, this is, pr- this is pretty good for, for, cer- for certain, I think it's very good for leaders. He says when he was faced with certain kinds of business decisions and he wasn't sure what to do, he would ask himself this question. If I were replaced tomorrow, what would my successor do? And he almost always knew. And in almost, almost, in almost in, in, in most cases, it was to be a little bit bolder than he was willing, willing to be, to make a tougher decision, to be a little bit bolder than he would be. And that kind of self-distancing, and we have some very, very good research on self-distancing, that kind of self-distancing can help him, can help leaders make better decisions. Um, and then what, what's more is that if we know You know, there's a very, very good chance that all your listeners, no matter what their job is, I think we can make a very safe prediction what they're going to regret in 10 years. And it's going to be about foundation. It's going to be about boldness. It's going to be about moral. It's going to be about connection. And so another heuristic you can, you can use is to say, imagine having a conversation with yourself 10 years from now. What do you want that conversation to be like when you meet the you of 10 years from now? And you don't, want, you don't want to disappoint that you of 10 years from now. And the truth of the matter is that the you of 10 years from now isn't going to care about most of the things you did and said and the decisions you made. But the you of 10 years from now is going to care a lot about certain things. Did you build a stable foundation for yourself, for your family, for your team? Did you act appropriately, boldly? Did you take a shot? Did you not phone it in? Did you you know, learn and grow and do something during your vanishingly short time here? Did you do the right thing? I'm telling you, nine out of 10 of us, if you don't do the right thing, the you of 10 years from now is going to have some words with you. And <laughs> right. finally, you know, when we think about connections, like, did you reach out to people you care about? Um, whether it's, whether it's people in your workplace, whether it's your relatives, whether it's your friends, the whole suite of, of things there. So, you know, whether it's a failure resume, whether it's this, what would my successor do, whether it's an imagined conversation with ourselves 10 years from now, we can use this emotion, again, that we often shy away from as kind of a springboard into, making smarter decisions and just being plain old happier inward outward and forward that's how we need to think about stepping back
0: learning from our regrets exactly well dan we could go on and on because i know there are many other stories from that i'd love to get you back on and talk about this and uh your other books too of course i'll i you know i'll come on anytime you heard that listeners dan pink will be back to talk about <laughs> Uh, Any number of his books. He's always, always fun to talk to, always fun to read. And as you've heard, always super insightful and useful information. So Dan, thanks a lot.
1: What a pleasure, Doug. Thanks for having
0: me.